Hello, this is Into the Greenwood. I'm Kathy. And I'm Rosie, and today we're looking at the Milk White Dew, um, which is a morbid story. Um, mm-hmm. Very morbid. Uh, we should warn you that we talk about cannibalism and child murder. Yeah. They're kind of the two key plot points of this tale, actually. <laughs> yeah, so... I want to say I hope you enjoy. I don't know if you should, but here is a story. There once lived a widower who had two children, a son named Curly Locks and a daughter named Golden Tresses. With no wife, he was forced to leave the children by themselves all day while he worked. And so, afraid of what may happen with no one to look after them, he remarried. The children's new stepmother was an ill-tempered woman, who had hidden her true nature from their father before their marriage. She loathed the children, and though their father soon regretted his choice of wife, it could not be undone. One day the goodman brought home a hare to his wife, and bade her make a soup for their dinner. The wife was a most excellent cook, but also a glutton, And so as the soup boiled, she tasted it, and tasted it, until it was all gone. Realising what she had done, and that she had no dinner to set before her husband, she hatched a wicked plan. She called Curly Locks inside from where he had been playing in the sun, telling him he needed to wash his face before dinner. While he was stooped over the wash basin, she took up a hammer and struck him about the head. Curly Locks dropped to the floor, and the wife slung him into the soup pot, The goodman soon came home, and he, his wife, and golden tresses sat down at the table to eat. "'Where's Curly Locks?' asked the goodman. "'How should I ken?' snapped the wife, and told him to eat the soup while it was hot. They continued to eat in silence, until the goodman lifted his spoon to see a little foot sitting among the soup. "'This is Curly Locks' foot,' he cried. "'You're havering,' laughed the wife. "'Tis only the hare's foot, you see.' But the goodman had found something else. This is Curly Lock's hand, my son's hand, he yelped. I'd ken it anywhere, by the crook of his pinky finger. You mean to tell me, said the wife. You didn't ken a hare's hind foot when you see it. Cowed, the goodman was silent, and went back to work confused and troubled. Golden Tresses, meanwhile, had watched this exchange and seen the truth of it. She gathered up all the little bones from the empty bowls and carried them outside in her apron, where she buried them beneath a white rose tree. Time passed, and as the tree came into bloom, those poor little bones grew into a milk-white dew that took to the sky in a flap of its wings. It came down to rest by a burnside, where two women were washing clothes. It opened its beak and sang, Pew, pew, my mimi me slew, my daddy me chew, my sister gathered my banes, and put them between to our milk-white stains, and I grew, and I grew, to a milk-white dew, and I took to my wings, and away I flew. The women were amazed. Sing again, said one, and these clothes are yours. So the bird sang, and in turn was gifted the clothes, which it tucked under its wing, and flew away with. Next it came to a house, where a man was counting his coin, and sang to him as it had sung to the washerwomen. This man, too, was astonished, and promised to give the milk-white dew his silver if it would but sing again. And soon the bird had taken flight once more, clothes under one wing and a pouch of silver under the other. 
last the bird came to a mill and sang its song to the millers who worked there. They gasped and bade the bird sing again, in exchange for their millstone. So the bird did, and the millers lifted the heavy millstone onto its back. The bird flew on with its burden and came finally back to its father's house. It alighted on the roof with some pebbles in its beak and threw these down the chimney. At this the family inside leapt up from their seats to see what was the matter. Golden Tresses was the youngest and ran the fastest. Once she was out the door, the milk-white dew threw down the bundle of clothes at her feet. Next came the father, and the milk-white dew dropped him the pouch of silver. Then last, out came the stepmother, and the milk-white dew dropped the millstone down on her head and killed her. Then the milk-white dew took wing and flew away, never to be seen or heard from again. With the gifts the dew had given them, the goodman and his daughter lived in comfort to the end of their days. Well, so, this week's scale uh, for the Milk White Dew is from a knife given to you by the man that loves your sister, to the Kaliach's hammer which freezes the ground. Where do you rank this tale? Um, okay. I, I definitely have to put it, um, I'm gonna put it towards the knife end of the scale in the sort of, um, mother trying to consume one of your internal organs to like be more pretty than you Ooh, kind of <laughs> uh-huh, uh-huh. okay yeah <laughs> i see the placement yes that makes sense to me yeah yeah that's where i'm that's where i'm putting it yeah uh, it's just it's just it's very um traitorous and very uh visceral <laughs> yep we're acknowledging the violence uh, very, very inherent in this tale. So I wanted to just acknowledge straight off that, like, immediately there's a version of this tale where it's a stepmother and a version where it's a mother. And, like, it's been discussed many times. <laughs> I'm not sure by us, I can't remember. But um, just in general, um, with folklore and fairy tales that um, oftentimes it was originally a mother that had been replaced by a stepmother to kind of not um, tarnish the kind of image of the perfect loving mother. Um, so I just kind of wanted to note that straight off that this may be one of those instances because we're seeing both. Yes, and I think also relative to that... Um... As you say, sometimes it was definitely about introducing some distance and making the tale a bit less threatening. Um, but some tales, so there's a similar ver uh, tale to this one uh, that is actually called The Juniper Tree by the Brothers Grimm. And it is specifically a stepmother because the daughter in the tale is actually the new 
wife's child. So you also oh. get the motivation of her killing the son precisely because she wants her daughter to inherit. Um, mm. And you get this additional sense of familial protection. It makes it a lot more... Well, does it make it a lot more complicated ethically? This lady still murders a child. It's still <laughs> incredibly bad. But yeah, um, I think yeah, it, it it's an interesting angle that she's she's selfish, but it's not quite as selfish in a way if she just is murdering one of two children that aren't hers for very little reason. Versus at least some kind of motive we could understand of trying to protect her daughter's future. Yeah, like that, that version puts me more in mind of like a cold-blooded, calculated um, person who's just out to get what she wants. The woman who just murders a child like because she eats all of the soup uh, and she's her husband is gonna not have food that's a woman I think who is very very ill um maybe maybe has some some kind of frontal lobe issues I don't know maybe <laughs> yeah it's... I think if that's all that it would take to make you snap and murder a child. Yeah. Um, I think you've snapped before. Uh, you know, I think there's there's been earlier signs that you're the type of person that might just murder a child to make soup out of them. Um, especially to feed the father of said child, who as far as we can tell, is a nice gentleman. <laughs> yeah. So there's just no reason for her to be so concerned that he won't have soup. Yeah. It, it just uh, yeah. It does not fit. Um, yeah. Like realistically. The reading did occur to me that like I mean, I just I don't think this is a good reading. I think it's quite silly, but the reading did occur to me that you could be like you could read into it and kind of think, oh, but why is she so afraid of him? He must be a terrible husband and this must, mm. like, reflect the terror that women had to live with. But I, I don't think it's that. I think they just want her to be monstrous and greedy and that's all it is. <laughs> yes. No, I know. I think it's always worth asking the question, why is the villain the villain of the piece? Yeah. Why do they have to do the evil thing that they do? Yeah. But yeah, especially in the Elizabeth Grierson version, where she's the stepmother. It says that he's a poor man that sometimes sighs to himself and just wishes he hadn't married again. <laughs> yeah. That's it. Yeah. He's a gently sad, passive, slightly rubbish man. You know, <laughs> yeah. like he can't protect his children. Um he is a terrible judge of character uh, you know but he's there's no implication that he is any worse than that and like you say yeah. i think it's it's lazy and reductive to 
suggest that this is a tale about, you know, the evils of intra-family violence in yeah. like a, a kind of generational cycle of abuse way. There's other tales yeah. that you could talk about that much more easily. But like you say, this one, this woman clearly is just greedy and evil. That's it. That's as far as we care about establishing her motivation. Yeah, like the most, the most I think that can really be said is that she's just like, she has her role, which is to like, have the tea on the table when he gets home. And that's like, societal thing at the time and if this story was told in a different culture or a different time she would like she would still have a task that she'd failed to complete and then for some reason killed a child over it It, like it it's not related to the fact I don't think that it's like anything to do with like the husband or whatever it's just like what she would have been doing at the time as a housewife and she's failed in that so she murders a child for some reason so (laughs) yeah um there are some things that have to happen for you to have the story and folk tales in particular are quite happy to just let that happen without generally explaining it very much I think that's some of what gives them their power to be so mystical and so so able to exist across time periods outside of their normal context. Because there's, by not explaining anything, you haven't pinned down the reason, so the reason can shift. Yeah. Uh, as people read it and interpret it differently. Yeah. Um... Like, I I did have, like, some examples of stories from different countries. So there was one from England, like, Devonshire, uh, where the stepmother kills the daughter and instead of the son, but it's the mm-hmm. same, same difference um, as far as the story goes. Um, and it's in retaliation for her failing to complete a task so she is told to buy candles and a dog steals them so she buys more and the dog steals them so she buys more and the dog steals them and then she's out of money and the stepmother Mm -hmm. murders her over that and then um one from Romania uh she just doesn't like them (laughs) (laughs) I guess that's a bit more like this one yeah Um, so like in that one it's kind of Hansel and Gretel the children are sent off away from the house because the dad doesn't doesn't want them to be killed and they like leave a trail of suit and then they find their way back but because they find their way back the stepmother then just kills the boy instead so I've seen some versions like that and it's why I actually think the ones where the second child, usually the daughter, is the stepmother's child, works much better to explain why the woman only kills one of the children. Yeah. Because if if neither of them are hers and she just hates children. Yeah. 
you know, it doesn't make much sense to me. I mean, I don't want to say if you're going to do evil, commit to doing evil properly and murder <laughs> both children at once. But in a way, I guess that's kind of what I'm saying. Yeah. Um, which I know is really a poor take and not nuanced. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but make a big batch of soup. Especially because presumably all three of them are in the house. Yeah. So the girl child will recognize. Oh, I, I mean, she has to. I don't imagine it's a big house. You would be concerned that she was aware. You know. It... And I mean, instead of if she hates the children, instead of murdering them, she could have just been like, "Oh, the children ate all the soup. I'm sorry. I don't know. Yeah. There's so many ways this could have gone. There's so many ways." Um, it's very strange. Um, so, in again, so this this juniper tree version that I mentioned, the way that actually, so the stepmother, she she decapitates the child using um, like a chest um, because she brings it down uh, on his neck, but then she pretends that she hasn't done that and props his body up on a chair with Ooh. a bandage and makes the girl child think that she's knocked his head off. Oh my gosh. And then she cooks the body. Ah! And it's Yeah, I know. It's really it's incredibly grim. But that's how you know, that's not good, obviously. But in terms of giving yourself an alibi and making sure <laughs> that the daughter isn't going to tell the husband yeah yeah you know that's convincing atrocious yeah. and much more evil than the woman in our tale it's also she supposedly loves her daughter but she makes her daughter think that she's murdered her stepbrother it's yeah it's a very uncomfortable tale yeah and i was i I don't know how to describe the emotion that I felt when I discovered that mother killed me, father ate me is a tale type. <laughs> mm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes. I'm not really sure what we can say about that other than it's incredibly unsettling. Yeah. My my first thought, and I, I don't really know where to go with it after just the initial thought, is it's this weird kind of unwilling Kronos effect mm, mm -hmm. where because in that story Kronos's wife Rhea she I think I, I'm, I'm thinking back to like my education now um it, it yeah it's her that brings the children to him to eat but you know he's I mean obviously he's the one saying bring me the children and I'll eat them she brings them to, yeah. to him, he eats them, and then obviously she then tricks him and gives him a rock instead of Zeus. So it's like this weird inversion where the woman is feeding her children to the father, but, but this time it's the father that's the unwilling participant. Mm-hmm. 
I guess. And mm-hmm. yeah, I don't I don't know where to go <laughs> go from there, but yeah. No, but you're right. That's an interesting parallel and I think huh, funny that we began saying maybe this story doesn't have to be about like uh, cycles of violence within family. Um but maybe if we go a step beyond that and think about a bit more what this is trying to represent psychologically um if we think about this as you generally have a dominant father archetype um and this idea of him eating the children either willingly or unwillingly until they fight back against the parent that's eating them and sacrificing them and develop themselves i suppose you could interpret it as a mythological teenage rebellion stage you know um in in child psychological development um made considerably more gory but i wonder if that's what it's speaking to you know this idea of a a violent struggle for will and self-survival and um, yeah conflict between parent and child because there is some to a degree um there has to be you know different people in a world of limited resources and yeah undergoing intense psychological development yeah and i wonder if like i i don't like to speak about character archetypes in this way where there's like an ideal woman and a shadow woman and that kind of thing Mm. but i wonder if to the people like telling these stories like I wonder if actually both parents were considered perversions of what the father figure and the mother figure should be. Um, Mm -hmm. There was this one version that I read where um, it specifically said, this was the version that starts off more like Hansel and Gretel, where it specifically said that when the wife was like, was getting really upset because the children had come back from the woods alive. It says that the father tried to pacif- like sort of pacify her or calm her down because he was a mm. weakling. Like it specifically mm. says, because he was a weakling, he tried to do this instead of, I don't know <laughs> what else he was supposed to do there. But Instead of just not show any kind of empathy or emotional intelligence and concern yeah. for the woman that he married yeah um what a wuss are they like is he supposed to just physically restrain her instead of emotionally help like it just you know looking Mm. at this tale today i see it and i'm like oh it's just a dad and an evil evil stepmother but i wonder if um 
many years ago there might have been this element of saying that both of these were bad parents, which I don't agree with, obviously, but maybe they thought that he is a bad dad for letting this happen, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, I don't think... I think maybe that explanation for why he's a bad dad is, um, like you say, unfair and, and incomplete. But what does bother me about this man that otherwise seems very nice is he keeps eating the soup he says <laughs> yeah. this is the foot and she says no it's not why would there be your son's foot in the soup it's the hair foot obviously and he keeps eating and then he's like no this is the this is my son's hand and she's like no you're crazy yeah so he keeps eating, finishes the soup, and is just and goes away confused, back yeah. to working. I mean, he is. I. He oof. is an unbelievably passive character, really. Yeah, like... and you know, like we said, we don't love talking about the archetypes in this way. But the shadow man, if you will, the problem is yeah. that he's unnaturally passive. Yeah. Yeah, and it really is kind of, you know, I like I look at this story today and it kind of takes me a while. I mean, obviously I see that his passivity is a problem when his wife is murdering his children, <laughs> but like, I'm still on on the side of that's very much on her. <laughs> oh, yes. Um, yeah. But... Yeah, I just wonder if in the past people would have been more reactive to this passive man character when when maybe like gender roles were more strict and enforced. Maybe people listening to this story would have instantly been like, Yeah, he's not he's not doing what a father is supposed to do, he's not doing what a man is supposed to do. Mm-hmm in a way that it doesn't occur to us so much now. Yeah. It's, it is possible. The tale itself, I guess jumping ahead to the end a little bit, he does still get a reward. True. Um, he's still... You know, however badly we're supposed to think of him, it's still... It's not quite that bad. Um, yeah. Which is only fair. Uh, yeah, most I mean... <laughs> he can be accused of is just being very passive and yeah, not perceptive at all, or doesn't have any confidence in his own abilities at least. Yeah, because if I think, I I would just like to think that most people, if they were eating a soup and were concerned that their missing child was in the broth, yeah, <laughs> they would stop eating. Yeah. I so I read a version where um he goes down to the cellar and sees his daughter's head like hanging there and the Ooh. the wife says and and he like cuz his daughter Mary is missing this one's from Yorkshire and uh -huh. the wife says it's a sheep's head and then, like, 
the next scene they're eating stew together and his mm. response is this tastes like our Mary Oh. And then he takes the wife down into the cellar and kills her. Wow. <laughs> wow, what's the name of that story? Uh, the Satin Frock. Wow. Well, I hadn't come across that one. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Atrocious. Oh. And, and now I'm looking at it, so the exact words are, This broth is nice, but it does taste like our Mary. There's so many problems with that sentence. Yeah. So many. <laughs> oh. I suppose it's only fair that stories around cannibalism are incredibly unsettling. But um, I'm surprised that there's so many of these that you can find a Yorkshire variant and that it's a recognised subtype of fairy tale. Yeah. I wonder what precisely it's trying to represent. The people of Yorkshire. <laughs> I mean, I mean, I say that as someone whose family is half from Lancashire, so maybe that's like some declaration of war, but whatever. <laughs> Probably. Oh, I was joking. I was joking. I was joking. <laughs> So I had some just kind of brief notes on the kind of individual little symbols that we have and maybe they're relevant, maybe they're not, but um, I think some of them tie in quite nicely anyway. Um, mm -hmm. Just the choice of like, of curly locks, um, there's a usual depiction of curly haired people as being kind of wild and unrestrained and that, I think, makes sense with this kind of... The wife mentions at some point that he's, like, a bit rambunctious and she has to run run around after him all the time. Um, mm -hmm. But... So I can see how it works as a shorthand for his... To give him some personality. And then there's this kind of second part that is willing to dismiss the unspoken rules of society to fulfill their desires and um so well my, my boyfriend was helping me with the research today and he said uh such as dropping a millstone on your stepmother's head <laughs> yeah and then naturally mm -hmm. the kind of golden tresses for the girl there's this kind of youth beauty angelicness sort of thing going on I quite liked um, how it's it's supposed to be a hare in the stew. Apparently, rabbits and hares have kind of been associated with rebirth and resurrection before. So I was like, hmm, interesting. That he's he's kind of the hare is replaced with a boy, and then the boy is later. A reborn, I guess. Yeah, that is very interesting. Especially because... Um, so in this juniper tree 
version that I mentioned actually, and presumably in all of them but less explicitly. So in the juniper tree version, the stew is mentioned to have kind of like black pudding with it, so it's body mm. and blood. Mm. And the an analysis that I was looking at said that this could well be interpreted as a biblical illusion, you know, mm. the the Eucharist, because mm. again, that's specifically body and blood. Mm-hmm. And that tallies in very nicely with the idea of resurrection and the fact yeah. that the boy becomes a dove, which again, in, in yeah. Catholic and Christian tradition, the dove is the Holy Spirit. Yeah, I was so, definitely... Mm-hmm. Like from from this tale, I was definitely feeling more like with with the symbols and just in my research, just things keep kept coming up, and I did feel like this one did feel a lot more biblical than some other ones that we've done. Yes, definitely, and I think you know there's there's plenty of scope for pointing out that there, you know, even when Western culture was a lot more culturally christian and aware of these symbols there will always have been people more and less skeptical and faithful and you know that's always an important part of any kind of biblical symbolism in stories uh, and comparing them with our own times now when people are a lot less religious but it's definitely interesting to consider this sacrifice that's going on and the implication certainly is that these are this is a poor family it's a very big deal that the soup is missing yeah so is there something about the the redemptive power of eating the body of the son who's then resurrected Mm. which would again be a hugely Christian and indeed mythological theme. Yeah. Know? It just feels like you just said something like really profound about the tale, and then the next thing I have is about how she hits him with a hammer. So <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah. yeah, I kind of I hadn't really verbalized that properly to myself until then, and now I'm also stuck. I don't know how to bring this back to <laughs> the rest of the analysis Uh, of the tale (laughs) I noticed in most versions I've read um, she she kills the child with some kind of weapon Mm -hmm. like a hammer or an axe and uh, in what I found one of the ones that was most sinister she tells the girl to like lay her head in her lap and then that she'll comb her hair. But then she says that she can't comb her hair with her head in her lap, so to fetch a block of wood. And then she says, I can't split your hair with a comb, so fetch me an axe, and I'll split your hair with an axe. And then she she says, now put your head on the block of wood, and I'll comb your hair. And then she chops her head off. And, oh, I just thought that one was particularly sinister. (laughs) Um, That's but very, I, very sinister. Yeah, but I think there is maybe a little 
something going on with this perversion of femininity, um, which, you know, I, I roll my eyes a little bit when I say that, but I, I think it's part of this this whole thing where she's she's not asking other people to do the murder for her. She's not using feminine methods like poison. Poison. She's she's mm. grabbing a hammer and killing a child. And yeah, yes. she's sometimes just sometimes even manipulating the child into providing her with the tools to murder the child. Yeah, it's very like. This woman is the anti-mother. <laughs> Very much so. And like you say, we we roll our eyes at that a bit because of how often it's been used to vilify women unnecessarily, shall yeah. we say. Yeah. But we also don't want to lose sight of the fact that actually being a mother is an incredibly important and beautiful thing if done right you have a lot of responsibility and duty of care to your children mm -hmm. and so a normal anxiety socially personally and in children's stories is going to be like you say the anti-mother that yeah. is an active threat to life and limb and mm -hmm. fails and abuses everybody mm -hmm. um, it's very much not what you want from your mother character which is why she's such a good villain I did have like a little thought about how the foot is kind of what's found in the soup and the hand and I'm like well firstly it's probably because they're kind of the only body parts that could be small enough to be left whole and still be identifiable um Mm -hmm. But also, I was sort of thinking, feet tend to kind of represent, it's like your, your grounding and your contact with the earth and home security, safety, like feet on the ground kind of thing. And on top of that, I was thinking, like, I mean, I don't think this is like super deep, but I was just thinking about it generally. I was thinking about Achilles and how it's, how it's his heel that is tethering him to his mortality and yeah. this kind of just feeling of the feet as this thing that is tethering you down to your mortality and the fact that this child has clearly lost his you know there's there's many cultures so particularly i guess i'm thinking of uh, Islam and I think also in Judaism you uh, you know you you have prescriptive washing rituals and that includes washing the feet there's something psychologically about how you're supposed to treat a foot properly um, and I wonder if again the idea of being able to identify a human foot in a soup is about this ultimate perversion, ultimate evil of, of this act, because a human foot is absolutely not supposed to be in a soup that other humans are eating. It's supposed to be on the ground. 
yeah you know attached to the rest of the body it's it's not something beautiful yeah it's not something that's generally thought of nicely it's yeah kind of the worst part of the body sometimes in a way i think yeah you can argue it represents that yeah and there's perhaps an element of the feet symbolizing free will the ability to travel the ability to mm-hmm, mm-hmm. make your own way um and and then this has been taken from him and i'm a bit you know i am wary of the, that sounding a bit um you know ableist symbolism in fairy tales is not always um the way we'd like it to be as we've mentioned several times with the kind of feminine archetypes and stuff. I think I quite like the idea of that element of free will, maybe in just that it kind of contrasts with the sort of true freedom of flying and being a bird. Hmm. And he's kind of lost his earthly freedom and gained a kind of spiritual afterlife freedom. Yeah, I think that's a very nice parallel um i think that's very interesting i also remember seeing some analysis that said this might be an anxiety specifically about uh power dynamics and helplessness so the idea of the foot representing his loss of agency Mm. uh, now that he's dead um you know if it's if it's linking into that this idea that children are quite powerless both in this tale and yeah socially um they're yeah. very prescribed lives to be honest or, you know school you generally have to do and eat and wear what your parents buy for you and tell you and yeah um and that the the end of this tale so with the the son killing the mother slash stepmother and with that only being possible because of the moral act of the daughter of you know taking care of the body and you know representing the the magic i suppose that allows the transformation and allows the justice that it was a way of highlighting that your powerlessness and your helplessness can can be transmuted. They're not the end of the story. You can still succeed and vanquish the evil, even if you feel helpless. The the hand can also just add to that as as its own symbol mm. of sort of strength, power, protection that's been taken from him. Um, they're also very intimately personal. Everyone has slightly different hands, um, which is why I, I like the the father saying, oh, I, I recognize it by the, the crook of the little finger, which again, you know, we've been through this, but stop eating the soup. <laughs> yeah. um, with bones being this kind of, they're this kind of permanence beyond death thing. Mm-hmm. So there's that. And then there's the kind of angelic, golden-haired girl 
mm-hmm. gathering them up and I think it gets quite biblical again with the um sort of when he's taken care of and laid to rest properly that's when he's allowed to come back mm-hmm. yes there's definitely something about proper respect and mourning for the dead and care of the body and that kind of that kind of ritual it makes me think of um antigone Mm. as well um which is about a sister taking care of her brother's dead body in an honorable way despite being um forbidden from doing so she Mm -hmm pays a very high price for doing so. Um, yeah. Works out much worse for her than it does for Golden. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> um, but I think it's interesting, and it's especially interesting to me in the versions where they're step-brother and sister, mm. that this sister still cares so much and will yeah. go to these lengths to give a proper burial and is then rewarded and is able to give the table the tale a happy ending yeah. by doing so. Yeah. It's it's one of the <laughs> it's one of the few like more heartwarming moments <laughs> in this story. Mm, yeah, it's quite light on heartwarming moments. Yeah, I found that in a lot of versions it was nearly always a tree. Um mm-hmm. and in this one specifically white roses obviously the innocence the purity the white dove yeah um and then i also felt that the tree was this kind of axis mundi the tree of life yggdrasil it's this pillar between it's representing a pillar between you know heaven Mm -hmm. and earth and through that he is resurrected Yes, and it's the same way um, cathedrals, particularly ancient ones, the the pillars and the ceiling are were inspired by trees. That it, we've mm. always had this association with a pillar upwards, um, yeah, linking us to heaven. So yeah, that's nice and clear. I wasn't sure if this was too much of a modern reading of the tree but if it adds to it it adds to it I guess but on top of that I just thought bolstering the um the tree is this kind of channel for the resurrection um it just makes me think of you know how we can tell when there's um a body beneath a tree, you know, like of an animal or something. We can tell mm-hmm. because the tree has like an increased growth period where it's getting more nutrients. And then, mm-hmm. and then, so there's this kind of feeling of transmutation from um, the body and then into the new bloom and growth of the tree. And yeah, I. And it's like the dove is like a a bloom of the tree, that kind of thing. 
And I was like, I don't know if this of thinking so practically about the tree is too modern, but it it fits in anyway. <laughs> no, I mean, I think I don't think that it's too modern. I think it definitely resonates. Um, so this juniper tree version that I've mentioned a few times, um, it's a bit more uh, layered, but so the first wife there's a juniper tree and she thinks that it's beautiful um, and she she sees it in the winter and she wishes for a child um, and as the tree flowers and you know we go through summer and spring she eventually gives birth to a child and is buried beneath the juniper tree and then you get the new wife and you fast forward a bit and the bones of the sun then are also buried underneath this same juniper tree. Mm. Um, and so you definitely have this association with the tree, with Mother Nature, with blooming and new life, uh, this capacity for for change for transformation i think i think you're reading it right i think give, give your interpretation some credit i think it works um, i think you, you're backed up by another story so. yay <laughs> the daughter gathering up the bones in her apron um just with the the apron as a kind of symbol of service mm -hmm. I just found that, like, to look at it that way, I just thought it was quite touching that that's her kind of last service to him. Yeah, again, it's about respect for the dead and appropriate acknowledgement of the responsibility we have towards other people, the duty of care, even if it's only a small thing that she can do. Yeah. Because she's also a child and powerless in this situation and it's too late. Yeah. She can still do something. And then we get the actual song yeah. from the bird. Um, and I have to admit, this whole, um, you know, music from uh, an unjustly murdered person made me think of the To Our Sisters that we did mm. and the way this ballad allows yeah. justice eventually to be meted out mm -hmm. to the murderer yeah i wonder if there's a kind of there's a little bit of a sort of fourth wall breaking read <laughs> you can do about the dead like if only the dead could speak for themselves but they can't so we're telling these stories yeah i think that kind of fourth wall breaking in a story is always very interesting uh it's very hard to understand it in the same way outside of the context of the original telling i think he's a little bird <laughs> um he's a little bird which sings um, a song <laughs> yeah so yeah i just thought um to so the burn side which is a burn is a stream um i hear oh, i wondered Okay. Yeah, I hear a lot of people being confused about that, but the burn, the burn, a burn, 
it, it's a stream, so it just means little river. Um, so he's at the stream side or the river side. Yeah, and I just kind of thought that was, um, it's a very natural image of new beginnings and forward momentum and going into the next part of the tale, a river. <laughs> yes, and we've also talked before about how water can often symbolise rebirth. And yeah. I think especially with the fact that in our version of the story, the bird doesn't get transformed back into the boy. Maybe you could say that this, uh, you know, crossing the river in bird form is sort of a way of, of sealing it. Mm. Um, you know, the rebirth now is complete. It's finished. Yeah. So the little bird flies back with all the gifts and uh, I'm sure part of it is like practicality reasons but I thought there was a little bit of like with carrying the gifts for the um, the father and the sister under its wings but the like millstone is on its back um mm -hmm. Yeah, there's like a little bit of like care and affection for the gifts and more of a, I don't know, like lifting this millstone on his back. It's like, you know, it's going to punish the stepmother with it. It's kind of, it's a little bit like bearing the cross on his back mm -hmm. if if the cross then went on to be a murder weapon, but... <laughs> well, um... I suppose if we're thinking about it as, um... an instrument of justice, yeah. um, the parallel slightly is more obvious. Um, and then also, uh, again, to, I guess, keep pushing on the biblical allusion, so, um, there is a biblical verse specifically, mm. which does talk about, um, whoever kind of hurts children or leads them astray, that it would be better for them to have had a millstone hung around their neck and drowned mm. in the depths of the sea. Mm -hmm. Now... I don't know, maybe that's a bit of a jump. Maybe that wouldn't have been intimately familiar to the audience. But maybe it would have been. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe that's part of the specific reason for choosing an innocent child resurrected as a dove to kill the evil stepmother with a millstone <laughs> and try and emphasise this concept of um, of divine justice. Over yeah. something incredibly evil. Yeah. My researcher uh, found... <laughs> he found he found me lots of things, but I feel weird saying, I have this, but he found it for me. Um, so... Very upright of you, very noble. <laughs> yeah, so I have a little bit about um, adding on to the millstone. It's this okay. as a kind of 
pain through kind of sacrifice of grain and then mm. death creation of something new um it kind of works again as this symbol of rebirth yeah um with the sort of the yeah, hard work definitely. the toil and the creation of something completely new um yeah yeah so there's that and then not only new but something so you know grain that you then use to make bread it's yeah it's new and life-giving yeah um um, the way that they live in peace and plenty for the remainder of their days after the use of the millstone in an <laughs> atypical fashion. <laughs> yeah. Uh. Yeah. And then it's quite nice, the, um, you know, the clothes as kind of an expression of, like, um, socioeconomic status. Just kind of, they, I think, you know, clothes... W- is a much more meaningful and important gift than it might appear in our modern consumerist fast fashion world. <laughs> mm. Yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, we know that there used to be laws, especially in medieval times, about what clothes you could and could not wear based on your status. Mm. Um we're now used to having so many clothes and them being so much more accessible that we've lost sight of how much we use them to identify ourselves and signify information to other people, I think. Yeah. Um, But yeah, I thought the same this is about giving her access to a much higher socioeconomic level than the one that she's at. I thought, interestingly, sometimes instead of clothes, she is given a pair of red shoes. Mm. Whenever they're shoes, they're always specified to be red (laughs) in the ones that I've seen. Interesting. So, yeah, it presumably has to represent the same kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. But, um, Hmm. I don't know. Yeah. Just a weird variant. Yeah. Yeah then you've got a kind of continuation of this with the silver. It's sort of, it's not just money, it's, you know, silver is associated with, you know, purity and healing and all that kind of thing. It's, it's, um, just a very, it's very nice metal. We like it. It's kind. It's antimicrobial, that sort of thing. (laughs) It kills vampires. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, no. Um, there's some I've seen. So if she gets red shoes, the father sometimes gets a golden chain or a golden watch or something like that. Mm. Well, it's again representing wealth. And any kind of pure metal can again represent yeah. purity, like you said. Yeah. It would be interesting to know where those different variants came from. And where they tend to be more common. Yeah. Um, yeah. Because I... I don't know, I couldn't see any clear patterns, precisely. And then after that, we just have the... The milk white dew flying away. Free, yeah. free of spirit. Free of the burdens of, of life. 
it does seem quite this is this is another interpretation where I'm not sure if it's a bit a bit modern um mm-hmm. or not i'm I'm not sure um but this idea of the spirit lingering because there's trauma there and then being able to move on once the trauma is resolved. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure if that's... Because I think that's a kind of thing that we most associate with the kind of ghost stories that we tell now. Yes. And I, I just, I'm not, I'm just not sure at all how prevalent an idea that was before. I think it will have been prevalent enough um, I mean, Hamlet famously goes yeah. to his dad, um, will not let him rest. Yeah. Um, so I think it's it's something that was already culturally present. Yeah. But it's true that it does feel very emphasised in our stories nowadays. Yeah, I mean, definitely, yeah, just the... I suppose it's kind of, it's a mixture of the kind of Victorian revival of various things and then also specifically nowadays, you know, post, post-World War, <laughs> post-World War One, there was this huge surge in spiritualism and yes. yeah. then there's another World War, I, yeah, I suppose... We can we can say it's an idea that's it's been around for a while, but I I can see why it's particularly uh, prevalent now in a kind of post World War world. I think that's definitely true, and I think also as religious systems become slightly more marginalised, mm. it also means I think that people tend to. They still have an impulse yeah. to hear about the spiritual side of things, so they then rely on something else. Mm-hmm. Um, which, like you say, is where a lot of that occultism and storytelling about ghosts and uh, yeah. seances and things like that, where uh, a lot of that ended up tapping into. I think a lot of the the need for like the seances and stuff, it was a lot of it would have been just this complete lack of closure with loved ones dying far away and then maybe never even seeing their body. And I yeah, I just wonder if there's like a little bit of you know, this boy's body has been consumed so he can't be laid to rest in normal ways then he comes back and it's kind of Mm. that kind of thing like yeah the way the way we relate to death is often quite distant in in modern times I think and I think um we need we need time to really process things, like, um, in the sense that, you know, they say, like, when you're, 
when one of your pets dies, you have to let the others see and um, sniff its body. Otherwise, they won't understand, and that will be very stressful and upsetting for them. Um, mm -hmm. And I, I just think humans are a little bit the same sometimes, not to be, not to be grim, but I think when we sanitize death too much, it can harm the grieving process. Um, and that it's also then in this story, it's almost like uh, it's like the opposite, where uh, instead of being like really sanitized, the death is very uh, gory and. You know, the one minute they're eating dinner and then it's his body and she mm. can only find his bones and, you know, he was alive this morning and now he's just bones and it feels a little bit in reflection of a, maybe a sort of extended grieving process where, um, you know, you want the, you want the deceased person to be back, you want to speak to them again, you want things to be set right and everything to be put in place instead of just this sudden inexplicable loss, I guess. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting point, especially because like you say, actually for golden tresses in this tale, it's very very condensed mm -hmm. it says that she has a suspicion of what's happened finds the bones and buries them immediately so you know the that's what the implication is mm -hmm. she doesn't have you know it's not like there's a warning that this is going to happen it's just that her life is is changed immediately the family dynamic is changed immediately yeah. She loses her brother that we imagine if she goes to these these lengths to respect what is left of the body. You know, we can assume there's a lot of love between them. Yeah, that's an interesting point. I do think as we lose the terminology and the comfort that religions give about death and rituals of grief and afterlife mm -hmm. it makes it a lot harder for us to talk about socially yeah um, yeah and i think that if you can't see something if you can't touch it if you can't discuss it you can't understand it in the same way i wonder if there was some some element to this story about you know, there once would have been, you know, much higher infant mortality rates. And mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I wonder if there's some aspect about the people who told it about their, their memories of losing siblings at a young age and maybe giving comfort to children who might and that sort of thing like on on one hand it's a story about like an evil stepmother on the other hand um it would be very nice to tell a child whose sibling has died that um don't worry they they've come back as a dove and they're looking out for you yeah they're 
part of nature and they haven't left you. Yeah. Um, it's a reassuring thing to hear. It's very gentle. Yeah. Well, this has been a very sad story, to be honest. <laughs> I mean, I just thought, yeah. I thought this one was like quite cartoonish in its evil. But um, I just, yeah, I feel really sad for the little girl and the dad and the little boy. <laughs> Yeah, the I thought the same, um, and I also read um, an analysis that talked about it being a bit uh, melodramatic, and yeah. that was sort of why it could work as a fairy tale because the violence was overemphasized and cartoonish. But I agree. I just the longer we've sat with it, <laughs> the sadder it makes me feel. Yeah, um, yeah, it really does. I think that's where we have to end on a downer. Yeah, I'm so sorry. I am just uh, like apologies, well, audience. I hope yeah. I hope we've added to your day and <laughs> I don't know. Death is sad. Um, <laughs> and I um, I just I don't have a way to to put a nice positive spin on it. I just don't. <laughs> death is sad. But as many poets have said, grief is the price that we pay for love. So mm. when it happens, you can still you can still act correctly and as respectfully as you can. Yeah. Maybe that's the positivity. We can still pull something back. <laughs> yeah, we're pulling it back. You'll get some clothes or some silver or some new shoes <laughs> instead of a millstone on your head. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, unless you deserve the millstone, in which yes, case you will be getting it. That was really on you. We don't make the so. rules, so yeah. <laughs> Thank you for listening to the Folklore Scotland podcast. We'll be back every single week with new folklore content, from stories to analysis. So stay tuned. Folklore Scotland is a charity founded to protect and preserve Scottish folklore through taking a multimedia approach to compiling and sharing folk tales telling the tales of the past with the technology of today. If you'd like to find out more about our charity, visit FolkloreScotland.com and if you're keen to become a voluntary contributor and would like to get in touch, send us an email at info at You can also find all of our social media links and a link to a written version of this story in the show notes. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time.